Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for meeting us here in your house this morning. Lord, you have said throughout the ages that when you ordained a place to meet with your people, that you would speak to them and you would be in their midst. And Lord, you are here. And we're so humbled to be in your presence. And we ask now, Father, that you would speak to us, that you would speak to us powerfully. That, Lord, you would speak to us in a life-transforming way by your Holy Spirit. That the teaching and the preaching today would be a demonstration of the power of your Spirit. That it wouldn't be the words of men or the words of a man. But it would be you, the living God, speaking to us through the living Word. Lord, I believe that we are living in incredible times. That we are living in the days where we are expecting your return at any moment. And Lord, we want to be about your business. We want to be a people who are thoroughly and completely in love with you, set on fire for you, radically used by you to your glory. And so, Lord, ignite our hearts today. Move us from that place of, uh, from just a, a passive, lackadaisical, lukewarm thing. And move us into a fervent, on-fire, passionate love relationship with you, Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you by your word to convict us, to convince us of truth, to rebuke, to chasten, to instruct, to challenge, to teach, to transform us, Lord. Not for us, but for your glory. To your name be the glory. So speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the Lord's been moving in our church, guys, with regards to prayer. We've been doing this series on prayer called The Agony of Victory, Uh, based on the first verse here of Colossians chapter 2. Today we're not changing the topic. It's the same thing, the agony of victory part 4. And I hope that you wouldn't go, oh, this again, but I hope you go, yes, more of this. Because listen, the Spirit of God has us camped out in this location. There's something that the Spirit is wanting to say to the church and He's not letting us go. It's not done yet. He's not letting us get away from this message. He wants to rattle us. He wants to wake us up. He wants to take us into some deeper water because... The Lord is wanting to do incredible things on the coastline right now. Remember Isaiah 42 that says the Lord will go forth like a warrior in the coastlands and that he will prevail over his enemy. And the Lord's wanting to do much. But remember, church, the Lord does not work independent of people. The Lord works through people. That is his chosen method. And so he's stirring in us with regards to prayer. And he's pulling down from us the stronghold of selfishness, which is really the thing that keeps us from intercessory prayer. He's moving so powerfully. Last Wednesday, praying for the youth was incredible. Um, There was just such a spirit of fervency and of intercession. And I mean, we were just going after it in the spiritual realm. And you can almost hear hell on the run, amen? And uh, kids' lives are going to be transformed through that prayer. And so we're doing it again this Wednesday. At 6 p.m., we're going to intercede for the youth. The Lord has not said we're done. We're going to press in, and I'm believing God for great and incredible things. Um, He's moving so much with regards to prayer, so much so that even my son is being affected. My son, who's five years old, he comes to this church. This is his home church. Goes to Sunday school every week, brings his little picture Bible with him. Uh, Yesterday, we were down at the beach. We were having family day, and we were down there picking up shells, and my son has a little shell collection. And we hit the mother load of shells. There was this one area where, I don't know, they were just all gathered right there. All those little long spirally ones, you know what I mean? He loves those ones, like little hermit crabs live in. But they're all empty. He gets bummed when he picks it up and there's a crab in it. They were all empty, different colors, big ones. And we're just like, what? This is incredible. And we started picking them up. And my little son, Isaiah, five years old, he picks up a whole bunch of them. And then he lifts his hands to heaven. And he goes, thank you, God, for these shells. In all sincerity. And I just went, whoa. That's awesome. Because it wasn't normal. It's not really a normal thing for my five-year-old son to do that. And it got even better. We were continuing to pick up shells, and I had this huge handful, or handful, and he had hands full, and he stopped and he looked at me and he said, We're being blessed right now. I just couldn't even believe it. It was glory. The Lord is moving with regards to prayer. I mean, his little heart just wanted to respond to the Lord in prayer and thanksgiving. But I'd be a liar if I didn't tell you how it ended. Man, we got 
tons, more shells than we could ever need. We're just picking up millions of them. And I said, okay, son, it's time to go. You know, get ready. We've got to leave. And he goes, no, more. (laughs) And then we're picking them up. And instead of saying, thank you, Lord, for the blessings, he starts saying, we're rich, we're rich, we're rich. (laughs) And I thought of the church in Laodicea. Remember in Revelation chapter 3, we studied it two weeks ago, the church in Laodicea, Jesus said to them, you think that you've become rich and you have need of nothing. But I'm telling you that you are naked, blind, wretched, and poor. And that they had grown lukewarm. And so church, the Lord is moving in our midst. Let's not finish in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit. Amen? Let's press in. Let's press on. Let's move into this thing that God is doing with us corporately about prayer. And if you see it happening, don't be a spectator. Dive in. Because I need to warn you that you can be right next to a powerful move of God and just miss it. Did you know that? Ask the men who were on the road to Damascus with Paul that day. When his life was changed, he got knocked down by Jesus. They didn't see it. They didn't get it. Ask the men who were on the banks of the river with Daniel that day. Daniel had an epiphany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ before his very eyes. But the men with him, they didn't get it. They weren't transformed. You can be right next to a powerful move of God, and because you don't grab hold of it and press in, you miss it. Just ask Judas. Judas walked with the Lord for three years and just kind of missed the whole point, didn't he? Church, the Lord is moving. The Lord is doing something. Press in. I want to encourage you with a book. It's called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And this book changed the course of my life several years ago. I got a hold of it. I was just starting to do ministry. And I read this book and it changed the course of my life. And I believe that this church and every other reality that the Lord is starting um, is a result of what the Lord did in my and others' hearts through this book. He just moved us into this thing of prayer. And it's a very simple book. I'm almost, my pride doesn't like to tell you that this book changed my life so much. Because it's very simple. I like deep theological books. But this is like all three letters in here. It's very simple. But it's about the Brooklyn Tabernacle and what the Lord did there through prayer. And it's a tremendous exhortation. And so we've bought hundreds of them in faith. I bought hundreds of them. And they're sitting out there by the book table. They're for free if you have no money. Uh, They're like half price. If you have some money, just get them. Read this book. If it does not impact you profoundly, bring it back and I'll give you a knuckle sandwich. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, to remind us where we are, Paul writes and says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for all those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Now we've been talking about this struggle. Prayer, prayer is the thing that Paul is talking about here and praying for others. He's praying for these in the Lycus Valley, modern-day Turkey, at the Church of Colossae and Laodicea, Laodicea and Aeropolis, people that he had never seen before. And yet he's laboring for them in prayer. Don't forget, his life is not hunky-dory. He's not in a good place. He's in a prison cell in Rome. And yet he's wonderfully concerned with these people thousands of miles away. And he says, I want you to know, the spiritual struggle I'm having on your behalf. And I remind you again what that word in the Greek, agon, struggle, means. It denotes strife, contention, contest for victory or mastery, such was used in the Greek games of running, boxing, wrestling, and so forth. The idea is the athlete who is contesting for, striving for, performing for victory. He's going after first place. He's going after the prize with everything that is in him. He's tuned in. He's at peak performance. He's running at optimum, and he's going for the prize. And yet here in the Bible, that's the word that Paul uses to describe not laboring for himself, but on behalf of others, church. You know, the athlete does it for himself and for this little wreath he might wear, this crown, or maybe for his country in the Olympics. But Paul is doing it for these other people. And so we're talking about struggling, laboring, persevering in prayer for others, seeking the welfare of others. He says, on your behalf. Not that praying for ourselves is a bad thing. Praying for yourself is not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. The Scripture doesn't condemn it. But wouldn't you agree that there seems to be a thrust in Scripture that is numerous and repeated commands to pray for other, others? And that the examples of prayer that we have in Scripture are generally prayers for others. 
But there seems to be in so many of our lives an overemphasis of praying for ourselves. Why is that? Well, it's just a reflection of our hearts. You know that we're kind of all about ourselves if we're to be honest. We can be very self-absorbed and self-concerned and dare I even say selfish. Paul was none of those things. He could have sat in prison and said, Lord, get me out of here. This is such a bummer. I'm getting so ripped off. I just wanted to serve you and it's not fair and why me and it's not working out and this isn't what I expected. He's not doing that. He's laboring for the spiritual well-being of others from his place in prison. And I'll suggest to you that there is something freeing about getting over ourselves. Can anybody give me an amen? There is something freeing about denying self. It's what Jesus told, told us to do in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. And denying self is a core component of Christianity. But one place where it becomes extremely potent is within the realm of prayer. When our prayers move beyond the selfish, me-centered prayers and into other-centered prayers. I have found in my own life that when I finally just gave up praying for myself and all my stuff and began to intercede for others, that God just kind of took care of me. Can anybody witness Do you know what I'm saying? When I finally got to that place of, ah, I'm sick of me and my problems and crying about them all the time. Lord, what about them? What about these people? Lord, move here. Lord, do that. And there's just this freedom that comes because it's biblical. It's God's design. Christianity is about two things, God and others. And you're just kind of a conduit between the two. You know what I mean? We're stewards of grace and we're to stand in the gap. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But remember last week's charge that I gave you or question that I posed to you, said more properly. I asked you, are you passionate about anyone other than yourself? Are you passionate about anyone other than yourself? Because that's what we see in the life of Paul. That's certainly what we see in Jesus, and we're going to see it in Moses today. The three towers that cast the furthest shadow in Scripture. Moses, Christ, and Paul. Each of them passionate for others. Are you? It requires compassion, doesn't it? It means that there's got to be this thing in our heart where we have a compassion for people. Compassion comes from some Latin phraseology, come meaning together, and patty means to suffer. It means to suffer together. Very few of us are willing to do this, but it's biblical. The Bible tells us when uh, one of you rejoices, all should rejoice. And when one suffers, all should suffer with him. And so there is this idea in the Bible of being compassionate, being willing to suffer with, suffer with others. And when we are compassionate, we become passionate, and we persevere in prayer. Look at the word persevere. The root of that word is severe. It means that there will be severe times where we've got to press in and persevere. But that has got to be driven by compassion. And if you, like me, Church, I bring myself down to where you are. Here's our hearts on the same level. If you, like me, lack compassion in your life, what is the answer? The answer is fall more in love with Jesus. That's the answer. Fall more in love with Him. Get to know who He is in His compassion, in His mercy, in His grace, in His character, in His kindness, in His goodness, in His faithfulness. And as you come face to face with the living God, who's so wonderful, and you fall more and more in love with Him, then the outflow, the fruit of your life, is going to be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Compassion, in a nutshell. But if you're lacking that, don't feel condemned today. Feel spurred on. We're to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. But ask any uh, horse, a spur doesn't feel good. You know what I mean? A spur is only useful when it's kicking you. I could wear spurs that jingle, jangle, jingle all day long, but until I kick them in the horse's rib, they're not doing any good. So don't feel condemned, but do feel poked and prodded a little bit. I have been as the Lord's been speaking to us, I have been. Of Britt, where's your compassion? You sure are a selfish guy, Britt. How about getting over yourself and into others, and let's see the prayer that comes from that. I hope the Lord is speaking the same thing to you. I want us to see how the compassion of Christ connects with our prayers. Turn to Matthew 9. Matthew 9, verse 
Matthew 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're just going to look at the last four verses. Starting verse 35, Matthew 9, 35, it says, And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Verse 36, And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Now listen, Jesus is going from city to city. He notices, he looks, he gazes upon, he sees the multitudes and he feels compassion because they're distressed and downcast or harassed and thrown down literally. Just a perfect picture of humanity. Just harassed and thrown down, beat up, abused, ripped off, wounded, taken from, stolen from, just all messed up. And the Lord looks and he sees this and he has compassion. Now listen, every time Christ feels compassion in the Gospels, he's moved to action. He always does something about it. He's not the kind of guy who just goes, oh, that's too bad and goes on his way. When Christ feels compassion, it moves him to action. Now, Jesus has at his fingertips all the resources of heaven. At this moment, as he looks at the people and he sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd, that they're downcast and ripped off and beat up, he's going to do something about it. And he could do anything he wants to. He could instantly heal all of them if he wanted to. He could call down legions of angels. He could do whatever he wanted to do. He could create something brand new. All the resources of heaven are at his fingertips. And so what Jesus is going to do next, don't you dare look at the next verse. What Jesus is going to do next is in the wisdom of God, absolutely right, incredibly wise, the perfect thing to do according to the wisdom, will, and economy of God, Jesus is about to do the right thing. Next verse, verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples... The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I hope you did not miss the profundity of that. That he looked and said, "Uh uh-oh, there's a problem here. People need help. I want to save these people. I want to minister to them. I want to meet their needs. And so what does he do? He turns to the disciples. He turns to you and I. Because you and I, church, Jesus' disciples, are his chosen instrument of grace in this world. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, We are stewards of God's grace. Each one of us has been given a special gift. Use it, therefore. And so when God wants to move in the lives around you, in your family, in your school, in your workplace, in your community. He's going to do it through you. The Bible is very clear from beginning to end. God works through people, not independent of them. And this is a perfect example. Jesus has compassion, being able to do whatever he wants to do. He commands the disciples to pray. He says, the harvest is plentiful. Look at all these messed up people, the Lord says beseech the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest field. You see, Jesus believed that prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. And he wanted change to come to these people's lives. And so he moves, he turns toward the disciples and tells them to pray because prayer moves the hand of God, people. Not against the will of God, but according to the will of God. Look what it says in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. It says, And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which, he, which we have asked from him. Notice what that says. This is the confidence which we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, we have it. There's an if there before the word ask. Will you ask? It is the Lord's will, 
But we've got to ask according to his will. Do you remember in 1 Kings? There in the opening verses, the Lord said that he would cause rain to come upon the land. But in the closing verses of 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah has to go and pray seven times for it. The Lord says at the beginning of chapter 18, it's my will to send rain upon the land. But Elijah goes up on Mount Carmel. We're told that he bows down to the earth and he puts his face to the ground. And he prays fervently over and over and over seven times according to the will of God. And yet we have to ask. You have not because you ask not. Ask and it shall be given to you. And so when the Lord wants to move, he turns to his disciples and tells them to pray. It's incredible. It's mysterious. Don't discount the mysterious aspect of that. In a way, we kind of go, why, why would God work that way? And that question comes up frequently. In fact, I got an email this week from someone who was visiting the church and heard the recent series on prayer, and they asked that very question. They said, I don't understand why I would have to pray about any of the things you spoke about. Why should I pray for people's salvation? It's God's will that people be saved, and he loves them more than I do. Why should I pray that they are built up or blessed? God loves them more than I do, and God wants to bless them. So they said, there's there's no reason for me to pray those things. And that sounds very logical, doesn't it? It sounds very logical. It's like, oh yeah, it's God's will and God will just do it. It is logical, but it is not biblical. It is totally logical. It makes sense in the material realm, but it is not biblical. The scriptures always present the primary purpose of prayer as changing the way things are. And the scriptures say very clearly, ask and you shall receive. Knock and it will be opened. Seek and you shall find. And that you have not because you ask not. And that is because, once again, the Lord has chosen to partner with you and I. He works through us, not independent of us. I wish he would. I wish he would work independent of us. Of course he does on certain things. You know, there are some blessings that just fall into the life of the Christian and the non-Christian alike, like ripe fruit from a tree. But there are other blessings for which we must take hold of the trunk and shake it until they come down, and that's prayer. The Lord has ordained it to be so because he loves us, and he wants to be with us. We're told in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 that we are the fellow workers of God. I love my, uh, sounds weird to say that, but I really enjoy my front lawn and my back lawn. I really like lawns. Fertilize my lawn. It's green. It's well-kept. Mow it. You know, I'm into lawns. Sorry to have to confess that. But uh, I'm mowing my lawn all the time. And my son, a few years ago, got a little fake lawnmower. And now he's kind of passed it on to my daughter, Daisy Love. She's 20 months old. And now she pushes his little lawnmower around. And when Papa gets out his big one, I got a big five horsepower one. When I pull out that one to mow the lawns, my kids like to grab the little one and push around the little lawnmower. And it's very cute and I enjoy it, but I make sure they stay out of the way. Now, I know when they get older that there will come a moment where one of them, and it better be my son first or he's in trouble. One of them will say, hey, Dad, can I help you mow the lawn? And when he says that, it will immediately go through my mind, oh man, this is going to take way longer, it's going to come out way messier, and it's going to be way more dangerous if this kid helps me. But because I'm his father, and I love him, I'll say, sure son, come here. Put your hands right here and let me show you how to mow the lawn. It's the same thing with your heavenly father. He could do the work of the kingdom better than you could. But because he loves you and you are his child and he created you not to be a rag doll, not to be a robot, not to be a nothing, but to be his child and a member of his kingdom and his vessel of love and grace. When you say, Lord, I want to help you, I imagine in the wisdom of God, he goes, oh, this is going to take longer. It's going to be messier and it's going to be dangerous. But because I love you, come and labor with me. That's the modus operandi of the Lord. That's how God does it. And so that is where prayer comes in. Do not miss the fact of what Jesus said. He looked at the people and said to his disciples, you have got to pray. Look how much partnership is implied in that. It's his harvest, but people work in it. He chooses and sends the workers, but we must pray and ask him to do so. I mean, it is thoroughly intertwined. 
it's just an absolute perfect partnership on paper. His harvest, but people work in it. He chooses and sends the workers, but we must beseech him to do so. Now that word beseech is translated from a Greek word, and it could be translated simply as ask, pray, implore, or beg. If you look it up in an English dictionary, beseech means to ask someone urgently and fervently to do something. The Lord didn't say, hey, just once in a while, if you kind of feel like it, if it's not outside of your comfort zone, or it doesn't uh, hinder your schedule, or your personal time, or your recreational life, if you want to, maybe once, ask me to send laborers into the harvest field. He doesn't say that. It says, beseech the Lord. Ask Him continually, fervently. Remember our word from last week? What was last, last week's word? Come on, church, give me some love. What was last week's word? Importunity, which meant to what? Yes, be persistent with insistence in prayer. We saw that Jesus taught that unequivocally, that we are to be persistent with insistence in prayer. And I want you to notice that the Lord is the one that had the compassion, but the disciples received the command. Don't miss that. It's not that the disciples' hearts were beating for the multitude. They weren't. In fact, the disciples were pretty selfish guys. They always argued who was the greatest among them. Up until the evening of the cross, they argued that. The Lord is the one who had the compassion, but the disciples were given the command. But I suggest to you that as they were obedient to the command, God saw to it that there was birthed in their heart compassion. You understand that? Sometimes we say, Lord, make me want to do it, and then I'll do it. That is the wrong prayer. That is a wrong prayer. He doesn't override your will. He asks you to submit your will to His. You don't say, Lord, make me feel it, and then I'll do it. You say, Lord, you said it, and so I'll do it. And then in obedience, then is birth that heart of compassion for others. Then God's heart is developed in your heart and begins to come forth. But that happens when we obey, not sitting around asking God to make us feel like it. Another reason why we must persist in prayer, last week we talked about persisting in prayer because of the battle there's a battle that's going on and we reference Daniel chapter 10 and Ephesians 6. We've got to persist because of spiritual battle and prayer is stepping into that battle. But another reason why it's important to persist in prayer and it's kind of a fringe benefit is because there's character development that happens as we pray continually or putting it in biblical terms, sanctification. There's a wonderful and glorious thing that the God of the universe does in your heart when you continually come before him in prayer. It begins to transform you. That's not necessarily the primary purpose. We're going to him to ask for things according to his will. But the basic meaning of prayer is to come to. And so when we pray, we come to him. That is the basic meaning. Remember that Hebrew phrase we talked about a couple weeks ago? Kavanah which means to have the mindset of prayer that you are cognizant and conscious of the fact that you're speaking to the Lord of the universe. And when we do that, when we come to him and we do it repeatedly and persistently, we have ourselves in that place where he can just begin to transform you. I mean, I don't even really care too much what you pray about. You could pray about something utterly ridiculous and if you pray it consistently, you'll hear from the Lord about it. And he'll go, son, that is so cute, but that's not my will. God bless you. Or I bless you. You know what I mean? I mean, as we come to him, and we bask in his presence, he begins to transform us. There's character development. There's sanctification that takes place. Those little hard places of selfishness get broken off. Those rough edges that are contrary to God's kingdom and what he wants to do through your life get smoothed out. That stuff that is hidden deep down in here that shouldn't be there gets purged out. And stuff where you're kind of lacking, the Lord begins to build it and fortify it into your character and the fiber of your being. And that's a fringe benefit of persisting in prayer. And another reason I believe why the Lord taught us last week that we had to be importune. But keeping in mind now that one of the things God is going to do in your heart if you commit to praying continually is He's going to birth in you a compassionate heart. You will have a heart after His own. Now I present to you two of the men who loom greatest within Scripture. 
Moses from the Old Testament and Paul from the New. And when you see their lives, you know that it's a byproduct or it's a factor of their prayer lives. Let's look at the heart of Paul reflected in Romans 9. Go to Romans 9 if you would. Romans 9. Now we've already seen Paul and his heart as we saw in Colossians chapter 2 verse 1 where he said, I want you to know how great a struggle I've had on your behalf. And we also see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where he says, nobody is led into sin without my intense concern. He tells us there that he has upon him in his life the daily weight of concern for all the churches. He's tremendously concerned for other people, but nowhere is it expressed more wonderfully than right here in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Paul writes and says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Look at me. You notice what the Apostle Paul just wrote there? What he's about to say is so unbelievable to you and I. It's so far outside the box of something we maybe even have thought of that he had, don't look. Don't look at the next verse yet. It's so far out there that he had to preface his statement by saying in the Bible, I'm not lying. My conscience and the Holy Spirit bears witness. What I'm about to tell you is the absolute truth. I'm not lying. It's so unbelievable. Verse 2. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why? Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Did you catch what he said? Paul says effectively, I wish, or it, goes to, or it could also be translated, I pray. I am so fervent, I am so compassionate for the Jews who have not yet recognized Yeshua, Jesus, as the Messiah, that I would be willing to give up my own salvation if their eyes would be opened. Paul says, I would wish myself accursed to spend eternity in hell, to give up all the blessings and the promises. That's how compassionate I am for my people Yisrael, he says. Does that, yeah, Amen. That's the Apostle Paul. Does that not astound you? I mean, are you all looking at me with a blank stare because you're like, big deal, Brit, I'm the same way. (laughs) Or are you like me where you read that and you go, Lord, forgive me for my heart. Lord, deal with my heart. You've got to transform me. Lord, I confess there's so much selfishness in my heart. I am so self-absorbed. I'm so tripped about, about all my own little stuff and looking for my own blessings. Lord, I, if I said that, I'd be lying. I'd have to preface it by, I'm lying to you. It's incredible. What is this a product of? This is a product of the prayer life of Paul. He did not just wake up one morning, well, I love people so much, I'm willing to go to hell for them. I'll be beat for him and shipwrecked and whipped and all these things for him. He didn't just wake up and that happened because he had good bacon. That's his prayer life. Now, let's look at another man who spent a lot of time with the Lord, Moses. Go to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. Exodus 32, we're going to read verse 32 just to get the heart of the passage, the heart of what I want you to come away with, and then we'll go back to the beginning of the chapter and dig into the context a little bit and glean some stuff from that. But Exodus 32, verse 32, let's start in verse 31 for a little bit of context. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. Now look what Moses says in Exodus 32, 32. But now, if thou wilt, forgive their sins. And if not, please blot me out of thy book, which thou hast written. Incredible. Moses says the same thing. He's got the same heart. Lord, you've got to forgive these people. 
I am so compassionate for them, Lord. I love them so much. I am so linked to them in the Spirit. The Lord, if you're not going to forgive them, blot me out of your book. I mean, it's unbelievable. Now, what did this come from? This came from the immediate context, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, that Moses is up on the mountain spending time in the presence of God. He's up on Mount Sinai, or Horeb as it's called anciently. He's up on Mount Sinai, and there he is with the Lord, just basking in his presence and his glory, communing with him. For so long, in fact, that Israel, camped around the bottom of Mount Sinai, begins to wonder. And they go to Aaron in the opening verses of Exodus 32 here, and they say, Aaron, where did Mo go? Mo's been gone for so long, we're starting to be concerned. Aaron, give us something that we could see. Make us a God that we can see and that will lead us. And so Aaron made a horrible, tragic decision and said, okay, give me all your gold. And he melted it down and they made a golden calf. And the people of Israel, down around the base of Mount Sinai, while Moses was up there with the Lord, began to worship this golden calf. And we're told in verse 6 that they began to celebrate around it. And in the, in the Hebrew, it's very clear, they were committing acts of sexual immorality around this golden calf. Now we pick it up in verse 7, with the response of the Lord. Verse 7, up on the mountain with Moses, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and says, Go down at once, for your people, Moses, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, they've corrupted themselves. They've acted quickly and turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and have said, This is our God, O Israel, whom brought you from the land of Egypt. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, and behold, they are an obstinate or stiff-necked people. Verse 10, The Lord says, Now then let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. Please give me your attention. The Lord was so appalled at what they did, He was so upset that He told Moses, Moses, get down off the mountain, Go down to the people and stay out of my way because, Mom, I'm going to kill every single one of them. And then, Moses, I'll make you a great nation. You're my boy, Mo. I'll make you a great nation. But I'm killing these guys. I've had it with them. And you know what? The Lord was 100% justified in what he was going to do. 100% justified. The wages of sin is death, according to the Bible. And they sinned grievously. And the Lord was justified in the judgment that he was willing to bring upon the nation of Israel. Moses, get out of my way. I'm wiping them out. Now I want you to see what Moses did in verse 11. Then Moses entreated the Lord or begged the Lord. Moses begins to pray. Moses entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, why doth thine anger burn against thy people, Lord, whom thou hast brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy burning anger and change thy mind." about doing harm to thy people. Remember, Lord, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants to whom thou didst swear by thyself and didst say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Now look at me. Don't look at the next verse. Look at me. This is one of the most incredible interchanges in the whole Bible. The Lord said to Moses in verse 7, Moses your people that you brought out of the land of Egypt. Now that's a display of how bummed out the Lord was because normally when he speaks of Israel, he says, my people that I delivered with my mighty outstretched arm from Egypt. And now the Lord says, Mo, your people that you brought out, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses begins to stand in the gap. He begins to pray, to stand in the gap between the people and the Lord. And he begins to beg the Lord. And he says, Lord, your people that you brought out of Egypt, Lord. They're your people, he says there in verse 7. Do you see that? The Lord said, the Lord disowned them. Moses, your people. And the, Moses goes, no, 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 Lord. These are your little stiff-necked people. 
And then he reminds the Lord in verse 8 of his glory, his reputation. He says, Lord, what about the fact that you brought them out from Egypt with a mighty and outstretched arm? What will they say in Egypt that the God of the Jews brought them out to the, to the wilderness only to slay them? Lord, they're your people and be mindful of your glory and your reputation. And then he tells them in verse 13 there, remember Abraham and Isaac and the covenant that you made with them. He reminds the Lord of his promises. Not because the Lord forgot. It's not as though the Lord is going to go, oh, that's right, Mo, thanks, man. I totally forgot about that covenant. (laughs) That's not the point. What Moses is doing here is interceding. He's pleading the case. He's standing in the gap and he's saying, wait a minute, Lord. These are your people. You know that, Lord. And Lord, be concerned about your glory and your reputation in Egypt. You know that, Lord. And Lord, you remember the covenant that you made with Abraham and Isaac and Israel to bring them into this land. Lord, your people, your glory, your promises. He brings the case before the Lord. Not because the Lord forgot, but to stand in the gap according to God's will because that's what God wants. Do you remember? You have not because you ask not. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Knock and it shall be opened. Seek and ye shall find. Look at uh, Ezekiel 22. We have it on PowerPoint. Ezekiel 22. If you look at the next verse, you're in big trouble. Ezekiel 22. Look up at the PowerPoint. Verse 29. Look at this scenario. Now, this is another time where the Lord is upset with Israel. Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-nine. 29. It says, the Lord speaking, The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and the needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. And I searched for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Thus, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Do you see what the Bible says? Once again, Israel was in trouble. They deserved the wrath of God. And God said, I'm going to bring wrath upon them. But then the Lord looked for someone to stand in the gap. It says there, I looked for somebody to stand in the gap to plead the case. But no one was found, so I brought my judgment. There was no one like Moses who would just stand up and say, wait a minute, Lord, I love these people. I'm compassionate about them. And so I'm asking you to have mercy. Lord, it is your will. And you are totally right in wanting to bring judgment upon them. But Lord, it would also be totally right according to your will and your character to have mercy on them. And so because we have not, unless we ask not, I'm simply asking you to have mercy on Israel. Now look at verse 14 of Exodus 32. Verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Does anybody feel uncomfortable? The Lord changed his mind. If you have the NIV, it's a little softer sounding. It says relented. If you have the King James, it's a little harder sounding. It says, repented. The Lord changed his mind. He relented. He repented. He changed his course of action all because Moses asked him to. We're told very clearly in Psalm 106 that the Lord spared them because of what Moses prayed. Psalm 106 verse 23. Therefore, the Lord said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them, he would have. If Moses hadn't simply stood up and said, Lord, but won't you have mercy, he would have destroyed him that day. But Moses simply stood in the gap. Church, do you, under, do you understand? Are you seeing the power of prayer? It is only powerful because God has ordained it to be so. It doesn't work against God. It's not in uh, contradistinction to God. It's not in tension with the will of God. God has ordained that prayer changes things. And God has said, when you come to me and pray, I will listen to you. 
And Moses asks the Lord, and the Lord goes, okay, I'll have mercy, because the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in kindness. He's compassionate, extending loving kindness and mercy to many. And the Lord changed his mind. Now that doesn't rest with many of us well theologically. Let's talk about it for a minute. Let me explain. On the surface, it seems when it says the Lord changed his mind or relented and repented on the surface, it would seem that there is then a contradiction in Scripture. Because you remember, no doubt, Numbers 23, 19, where it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son a man that he should repent. Or 1 Samuel 15, 29, God will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And yet it says in Exodus 32, 14, that because of the prayer of Moses, the Lord changed his mind. Now what's going on here? Just three simple points that will shed light on the subject for you. Number one, when it speaks of the Lord changing his mind in Exodus 32, 14, it is anthropomorphic language. What is an anthropomorphism? It is ascribing or attributing human characteristics or behavior to something else, to an object, to an animal, or to God. It's anthropomorphic language. Just like when we say, the Lord leads you by his righteous right hand. He doesn't have a righteous right hand. The Bible says that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's an anthropomorphism, trying to communicate to a finite mind the infinite wisdom and things of God. And so trying to communicate to our finite minds, we are told concerning the infinite action of God in Exodus 32, 14, that he changed his mind attributing human characteristics to God that we might comprehend. Now, what helps us understand further is that God is without sin. Point number two, God is without sin. See, you've got to strip away the connotations of changing your mind or relenting or repenting. When we repent or relent or have to change our mind, it often has to do with the fact because we failed in wisdom or we failed in a correct choice or we're in sin. But God does not sin. He is without sin. That is a basic truth of God. And so it doesn't have the same connotations when he changes his mind. It's not because of sin. It's not because he was on a wrong course. It was a right course, and he was justified in wanting to bring judgment to Israel. But it is also a right course, and he is merciful in extending them mercy. And both are according to his will. You see, judgment in Scripture is often conditional upon what people do or don't do. And when it says here that the Lord repented, it's a different word than is used in the Old Testament for people who repent. When people repent, it's the Hebrew word shub. When God repented here, it's the Hebrew word necham. Two different words. Because one, the one for people has to do with sin. And the one for God does not have to do with sin. In fact, the inherent meaning of the word, necham, suggests relief or comfort from a planned, undesirable course of action. The Lord does not want to pour judgment upon his people, but because he is righteous and just and holy, he must, unless somebody stands in the gap and asks for mercy. And Moses stood in the gap. And the Lord said, awesome. That is according to my will that you ask me for mercy. I will extend it. Who stood in the gap for you and I when judgment was coming our way? Jesus Christ. He's called our intercessor. It's the same concept like Moses, like Paul. Jesus, though we deserve the judgment of God, took the wrath, stands as an intercessor, that we might receive the mercy of God. Amen. Praise the Lord. You have some homework that's going to help you understand this, and you're going to be discussing it in your home groups, so write it down, please. You'll be discussing this in your home groups this week. Your homework is number one, Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12. There you're going to see the conditional nature of God's judgment and of His blessings. God's judgment and His blessings. The conditional nature there in Jeremiah 18. And then you're going to read 1 Samuel 12. 
And in 1 Samuel 12, you will see the interplay between a prophet's prayer and the people's repentance. That the two need to go hand in hand. Standing in the gap and people repenting. So you'll see that interplay there. And then what will tie it all together for you and make application is when you go to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Read it before your home group this week. You guys will be discussing it. But to close, here's what we've seen. We've seen that great compassion is what drives intercession. We see it in Jesus who told the disciples to pray because of his compassion. We see it in Paul who labored on behalf of others and could wish himself accursed because of his compassion. And we see Moses who says, Lord, blot me out of your book if you won't save these people. And a man there who was willing to stand in the gap. And we saw that God changed his course of action because of the prayer of a man. Not against his will, according to. Now, would you agree with me that prayer is the most incredible privilege knowable to man and that it is the most powerful resource we could ever imagine and every one of you is invited into it by the Lord himself. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we just ask that according to your word, your spirit would transform our hearts. that you would so draw us individually into your presence, that you'd so reveal yourself. Lord, we want a fresh revelation of who you are. You'd so reveal yourself in your glory and your love and your righteousness and your mercy and your compassion and your goodness that, Lord, we would just fall madly in love with you. Lord, teach us to love you more. And then, Lord, in that, just birth in us this heart. Lord, make us a church, make us a people that prays. Lord, that your house would be a prayer, a house of prayer for all the nations. Lord, you've got to do that by your spirit. And God, I believe you are doing that. But we would say more, Lord. I would ask that nobody would just miss out on what you want to do, but we would press in. So show us what we need to do for that, Lord. Spirit of God, move on this coastline. Go forth like a warrior on this coastline, Lord. For your people, for your glory, because of your covenants and promises, Lord.